two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas, ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com tutor to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com tutor. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Tudor Dixon Podcast. Today, I want to dig into all things Middle East because I think many of us are learning all about this region of the world. And I see a lot of people on social media making assessments of the situation. But one thing I've noticed is that they're making those assessments from a very Western perspective. And while I, I know that we're going to talk today about Israel being a very Western, Westernized country, that is not the case for the entire Middle East. So I think it's crucial for us to understand the culture in the Middle East surrounding Israel and Israel. So we decided that the best way to do that was to chat with a gentleman who can break down everything that's happening in the Middle East and why some of these hot takes in the U.S. are way off base. We are bringing in David Wormser. He is a senior analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. He previously served as a senior advisor to Ambassador John Bolton and Vice President Dick Cheney. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And it's a pleasure and honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. I know you're just getting back from Israel yourself, and you were there throughout the whole entire conflict. You got there about a day before this started. But you were telling me, sharing with me, that you're there with all of these families, and it's just like being in the United States. This is a very westernized country within the Middle East, within really the Arab world, surrounded by a culture that is not very much like ours. But tell us a little bit about Israel. Well, sure. I, I mean, it's it's not a very large country. It's only about 10 million people, of which about 8 million, well, it's 9 million people, about which 7 million are Jews, so about 80%. Uh, but there's 20%, which are Muslim Arabs. There's uh, Christian Arabs, Christians, who more and more do not consider themselves Arabs. There are Druze, which is an ancient Middle East sect. Uh, there are others as well. And uh, they're all citizens and they all vote and they even have parties in parliament. So it looks like a very functional Western country. And it is, it, it, it has all the services you'd expect. It's a fairly wealthy country. It's per capita income is, is uh, surpassed uh, Japan and Britain's and is uh, now creeping over the line with Germany's. So it's, it's a very well-to-do, well-functioning 
Western country, much like San Diego uh, is. But then it is the Middle East. It's at the edge of the Middle East. And Israelis themselves often forget that. And maybe that's part of what just happened is they they imagine themselves to be departed from the mentality of the Middle East, and they project that onto their neighbors, and it leads to breakdowns, which is what we just may be seeing. Uh, so at any rate, so Israel is like that, but it, now it's at war. So it's it's very much kind of a surreal environment at the moment, but usually it's it's like being in San Diego. So explain to us a little bit about the territory there. I know in 1967, I believe it was, there was a war where Syria and Lebanon ended up with parts of what was Israel. And then it sounds like Egypt ended up being in control of Gaza, but Gaza seems to still be a part of Israel. And so I think we're all a little bit confused about what this, what this argument is about, because we're hearing a lot about oppressors and we're hearing a lot about colonists and you know they are on stolen land and all of this but tell us exactly what the breakdown is and why there is gaza and israel and what the difference is sure uh you know one thing right off the bat is that the jewish people the whole point of israel is the jewish people after two thousand years of exile came back so Mm -hmm. they are the original indigenous population and there's lots of proof of that uh, for everything from DNA to archaeology, language, linguistics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, and, and there was a contiguous or continuous Jewish presence uh, throughout. There were times it was very thin, only a couple thousand. Uh, and sometimes it was even an outright majority, like it was up until the fourth century. Uh, but Jews have always been there. Uh, and moreover, uh, they they never even when they were in the diaspora, stopped dreaming of going back. It was a central element of Judaism is the return. So it it is very much an indigenous population that considers that land its land. To really go to the history of it, we can do it in 20 seconds. Basically, in 1920, the League of Nations after World War I, the land had not been the sovereign a sovereign state of anybody uh, in the mm. 2,000 years since the Jewish exile. It was always a province of an empire, whether it's the Roman Empire Byzantine Empire, Persia, whatever. It was always a province of the, the Arab Empire. was a province until 1919 when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and the British took over. And they took over under what's called a mandate, which is they were mandated to take the territory as a trust to create a state. And the mandate said there should be a Jewish state there because the deed to the land uh, belongs to the Jewish people. So, and it defined the area, which is roughly what Israel is today. In 1948, after much internal fighting uh, because of the internal Arab population that had grown a lot in that period, the Jewish population, which started seeing return from the diaspora, especially after World War II and the Holocaust, you started seeing the internal fighting uh, escalate. And the UN basically said, you know what, let's just cut the land in half. Uh, And the, the Arabs get this, the Jews get that. The Jews said, yes, we accept that state, anything great. We have our state back. And it was about 40% of the land. The Arabs would get about 60. The Arabs said no. They did uh, an internal uprising and every Arab nation bordering Israel invaded to wipe it out. And that started the process of continuous warfare and no recognition. In 67, all the Arab armies gathered to wipe Israel out. But Israel won. 
and took the remainder of that territory from the partition of 1948 and uh, essentially completely uh, took possession of the, uh, of, of the mandate. Uh, and the Arab world essentially said, yeah, but we will not recognize you, not talk to you, and never make peace. The three no's. No, no, no. And uh, that was the case until Egypt made peace and then Jordan made peace. And then two years ago, three years ago, under the Trump administration, a series of countries, about four or five, made peace with Israel in the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia was on the verge of making peace. Uh, Egypt and Jordan, two countries bordering Israel, are at peace. So you really had a slow grinding movement toward acceptance of Israel as a legitimate country in the region. And that's where we are now. The Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, those Arabs that lived in Israel before 1948, uh, and and are, those are the ones who live in Gaza, the West Bank, which is what biblically is called Judea and Samaria. And they're not part of Israel because it's 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 territory that the Israelis haven't asserted their sovereignty over, even though it is part of the mandate that was given them because of demographic reasons. They don't want to absorb it because if you become part of Israel, you get full rights. You can vote, you create a party, mm. you do all those things. So the Israelis don't want to absorb a population that would make themselves only a 50 or 60 percent majority. So they're not sure what to do with that land because it's theirs, but it's also very, uh, oh, well, I don't want to say it's theirs. It's land that's considered of disputed sovereignty. So it's nobody's, but the mandate had given it to them. Um, but, but do they have some sort of control over it? Because we're hearing that they're yeah. stopping supplies from going in there and water yeah. and electricity and all that. So how does that work on the ground? Right. So there's two two categories here. I didn't mention the Oslo Accords as as a peace treaty because it was it turned into anything but peace. But in 1993, the Israelis said, you know what, we can't keep controlling all these Arabs, uh, but we can't quite give up all the territory. So they cut a deal with the arch enemy, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was very much a Soviet orient, one of these classic Che Guevara like liberation organizations. The Israelis mm. said, you know what, we'll give you we'll give you control of all the population areas. And they gave up about 30 percent of the territory and all of Gaza to the PLO and said, you know what, you run your lives, you run your police, you run everything. Just no foreign policy that's yours. You're not a sovereign country, but every other element is self-run with the idea of eventually creating a sovereign country. And the moment the Israelis withdrew from territory, it became essentially a springboard for terrorism. So 93 was the Oslo Accords. By 95, Israel was facing hundreds dead by terrorism a year. They, they, they were down to five to 10 before that. And by, by 2003, it just completely collapsed, exploded. Israel lost almost 1,000 people in two weeks to terrorism. Uh, and they, uh, they essentially had to tighten their control. They didn't give take back control of the cities, but they they tightened their control and used hot pursuit pretty free-handedly after that. So if they see a terrorist or see terrorism emerging in the West Bank, they go in, which is why you did not see very much violence this round from the West Bank, because it just was never allowed to grow. Gaza, however, in, 19, in 2005, the Israelis said, you know what, we it's so populated. It's so concentrated. It is just not ever going to be part of Israel. Just give it up, walk away, build a wall around it, 
and let Egypt take it, let it become independent, let it do what it wants. And they thought they could handle it, and that they couldn't. That became now not only a springboard for terrorism, but essentially an army, an advanced army for the Iranians. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. Folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is, quote, worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets, so you can power more devices at once, and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas, ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4 slash tutor to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4 slash tutor. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we hear about the fighting back and forth. You talked about it being kind of an understanding in Israel that you hear the sirens, you have 90 seconds to get into a safe room, that there's always a a fear of missiles coming in. But how did this attack happen? It, It seems like for this attack to happen, for them to somehow get through all of their defenses, come in with these paratroopers, exact this kind of 
horrific attack against the Israeli people, that that would take millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, and years of planning. Yes. Well, the, the Hamas is awash, awash with money. It gets money from Qatar. It gets most of its money, almost, I've heard up to 90 some percent from Iran. Uh, and it also gets money from the United States, the Europeans, the UN, uh, supposedly as humanitarian aid, which is good natured and intent. But we saw the, the United States gave a lot of money in the last two, three years to lay down new water pipes in Gaza so that everybody would have fresh and good water. And Hamas dug up those pipes, cut them to pieces, and are using them for missile fuselages. So that... Oh, lovely. Yeah. So you see how this is, the money is diverted. And really, Gaza is filled with poverty, except for, of course, the leadership, which is living quite handsomely, but also the huge amounts of money and resources that go to building an army. So that's where all the money goes. It's to building an army. It doesn't go to feeding people, creating jobs, infrastructure of any meaningfulness uh, for the population. It's all about the military, the, 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 the Hamas military to attack Israel. So that's, that's where all the money goes. But it's a lot of money from a lot of sources, including Iran. We are talking billions and billions of dollars. And uh, that, that's, of course, a big question. Why, why didn't anybody cut it off? It seems as though this is not going away anytime soon. Obviously, Israel it still has hostages over there. They want to get them back. They want to exact their revenge. But you see now Hezbollah is coming in. They are looking like they're going to get more involved in this. Hamas is still sending over missiles on a daily basis. If they have this, if they are so flush with money, how does Israel fight back? And I know we see a lot of people in the United States saying we don't want to get involved. We have this kind of America first attitude now. And a lot of people think that America first means that we are just all about America. We don't engage. You have stated that you believe that Israel should fight this war and, and they should be the ones to defeat them so that they can show that they have force. Are they are they able to do that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, you, you've raised a lot of really excellent points here. Uh, and and uh, the first one is, and this is a warning for Americans, Israel was asleep. We, we said it's sort of a Western country. They, mm. th- they think like Western country. They did not imagine. So th- their attitude was, you know, Gaza is less than two million people. It's pretty poor as a whole. Even with all this money coming in, how big can Hamas build an army? And that army against the modern Western army that is so powerful and much larger I mean, and and then the Israelis also open up the borders for laborers to come across into Israel, tens of thousands a day uh, from Gaza. So they thought there's economics is developing. They're giving them the the, the access to Israel's economy, uh, much larger, more powerful. What interest, what interest possibly conceivably could Hamas have to do something like this? So the Israelis fell asleep. And they let this build and build and build and build. And with each round, it was like a whack-a-mole. They'd whack, whack, whack Hamas back down and they'd say, now they learned their lesson. And in the end, we saw how much they did learn their lesson, which is not at all. And the Israelis are facing a very, very difficult circumstance now. So, and, and I think this is a microcosm for the West, is that we 
project to the world and we don't quite understand that there is a threat emerging globally that we're kind of asleep toward. This is really the local map. That's what I was going to say. I feel like you're talking about the United States when you say this, because I can see the same thing applying to us as well. Right. It's like Tolkien in, uh, in, in Lord of the Rings. There's a sleepless malice that stirs and you feel it. You feel it, whether it's China and Russia, mm-hmm. you feel it, whether it's Iran or whether it's North Korea or or Venezuela or Bogota now with the narco terrorists there. You feel that there's this crowd out there that is stirring and it and it means ill for the West and it feels America's limping. And it's challenging the system at the edges. Now, Israel is the edge. So that's where you see the challenge. Uh, but it's really, I think, a lar- part of the larger one, larger challenge emerging in the West. And the Israelis suffered every single illness the West has. The kids didn't ever think they'd fight wars. They're more worried. You know, just very much like Western kids had all these weird ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And, I mean, uh, even when we see the kids that were at that festival, they were celebrating peace and they were, it sounds yeah. like a yeah, lot of that. these yeah. areas right. that were invaded were like, we're going to make peace with these folks. And they right. felt like they were going to be the the, pe- the the next generation to bring everyone together. And that must have yeah. been a big wake up call. Yeah, it's a big wake up call. And many of them now are in uniform and on the border. Uh, so mm. those that survived. The, the, there was uh, in that peace festival, uh, that was where the greatest death toll was, um, about 270 people, I think, in that concert. But at any rate, so you, you, you do see that sort of reality collapse that the Israelis have. So now they're trying to deal with this reality collapse. What do you do about Gaza? I mean, this is a populated area, urban warfare. So they're trying to warn the population in the north of Gaza, go south. By the way, we're not talking very large areas. Israel as a whole is only about 50. This includes the West Bank and Gaza. Israel and the West Bank and Gaza wide, it's only about 60 to 70 miles. From very oh, wow. top to the very bottom of Israel is only about 200 miles. So you're talking about a, a, a whole country, the whole conflict, in a state about the size of Connecticut. So Gaza is, is much smaller than that. It's part of, part of that that equation. So the Israelis told North Gaza to move south so that they don't have to do urban warfare. But Hamas essentially is threatening the population that they'll kill them if they move south. So these, because they use them essentially as a human shield. So the Israelis are really in a very difficult place. But then you also have the larger realization the Israelis had, which is why didn't deterrence work? Uh, what Hamas must have known that Israel's reaction after this is going to be to destroy them. So why did they do it? Who commits suicide? And the answer that the Israelis feel is like a suicide bomber does what he does, and you can't deter him to advance the strategic goals of the terrorist organization. There are suicide terrorist organizations that operate to advance the strategic goals of their patrons, which in this case is Iran. So the Israelis look at this not as a Palestinian Israeli or even as a Hamas Israeli fight. They look at it as the local part of an Iranian Israeli fight, specifically the Iranian regime, because the Israelis really 
Um, they have a lot of connections with the Iranian opposition, the up the uprising in Iran and so forth. They're working very closely a lot with them and so forth. So there's there's a lot of people to people interactions, but the government of Iran, of the Ayatollahs in Israel, of course, are mortal enemies. So the Israelis see that to be one of the one of the main strategic points here. And if that's the case, then the sort of war they have to fight is far bigger and broader than just Gaza. And that is where the Israelis are right now. They're essentially collapsing what would be normally a 10-year strategic debate, contemplation, public argument, and they have to make decisions within a week or two weeks that normally take nations a decade to make that shape their strategic mm. environment. Uh, but one of the things they do realize is that their image of power has been shattered. They're in a region where the strong horse and not a lame donkey survives, uh, that peace with their Arab neighbors was in part anchored to the idea that their Arab neighbors felt threatened by Iran and others, and they saw Israel as a strong horse that was consistent, and to some extent even replacing America as America withdrew some of its power from the region. So they understand both peace and war now rides on their ability to restore their image of power. And they're not sure that they can do that strictly by defeating Hamas. They think they really need to end this war ultimately by throwing Iran itself on the strategic defense and taking the war to Iran. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. Folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is, quote, worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets, so you can power more devices at once, and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas, ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4patriots.com tutor to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com tutor. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the last, what, two and a half years, they've been able to amass tens of billions of dollars through oil production. And how much of that is because of the change in our oil policies in the United States? Oh, I think a lot of this has a lot to do with that. Uh, Two years ago, two and a half years ago, Iran had been choked to death, essentially, the regime. You heard demonstrators across Iran screaming, no to Gaza, no to Lebanon, where Hezbollah is another front in this war. Uh, No to Hezbollah, no to Gaza, no to Yemen, which is yet another front. Yemen tried to send missiles into Israel. Yemen, which is almost 2,000 miles away, uh, south of Saudi Arabia. So you heard Iranians say no to Yemen, no to Gaza, no to... Money, you know, Iran for Iranians, which meant we don't want to waste. We're poor. We want our money for ourselves. We're starving. We don't want to sacrifice for all these people all over. Iran for Iranians, essentially an Iran first sentiment among the population. They were angry at their government. And the government was becoming bankrupt. It it was down to $4 billion of, of foreign reserves, which is nothing really. And they need that money. They need that money to buy weapons and technology from abroad. They need that money to send abroad to Hamas, Hezbollah, Yemen, et cetera, to have these proxies that they can employ. They need that money to pay their own services, security services of repression, to kill other Iranians that try to rise up. There's a lot of money involved here, and they were running out. So when the Biden administration comes, it essentially, it never formally lifted sanctions, but it didn't impose, it didn't didn't stand on imposing mm. them. So Iran managed to, uh, in the last two years, have over $100 billion a year of income from oil that is technically sanctioned, but isn't being sanctioned. The United States has allowed in various deals other countries to unfreeze their assets. So there's tens of billions there. And then we had the latest deal, which is America itself to get its hostages out, four or five of them, uh, paid a uh, between six and eight billion dollars directly, and from what I'm hearing, anywhere between twenty-five and forty billion dollars indirectly through unfreezing assets of other countries, and and so on and so forth. So Iran now has a lot of money, and a lot of that money wound up in Hezbollah, which is bearing down on Israel in the north. And by the way, that's a hot front. Uh, Israel's so, already. Lost. So why? No. Why does 
Iran wants so badly to go after Israel. I mean, if we look at the Trump administration, the Trump administration had obviously ratcheted back anything that they could make. They were in a situation where they didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have the ability to go after these weapons. When you're talking about these sanctions, it was preventing them from making all this money. And then Biden gets into office. It it really defies logic that Biden would say, we're going to let the world's sponsor of terror just rake in cash and prepare. But you look at the the murder of taking Soleimani out, and then Biden gets into office pretty quickly after that. And if you follow the supreme leader's tweets or whatever we want to call him, the ultimate dictator in Iran, he has been pretty clear that he wants to exact revenge on that on Soleimani's death. And so he said that really, I mean, almost weekly since then. Is that is this his some sort of revenge for him to go after Israel? Is is making this unrest and and causing this kind of you know diversion out in the Middle East, is this a way that you could actually create a world war. Yeah, you know, um, both, uh, again, a lot of really good parts of your question. I mean, first of all, yes, this is, if you go back to Soleimani, it's part of a larger thing that the United States was uh, choking Iran and the Israelis felt a tailwind. They felt backing to take on Iran. But most importantly, the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, uh, uh, Morocco, uh, a whole series of countries felt that the West and Israel are, they have their heads on uh, correctly, they're sober. Uh, even if America is withdrawing some forces, and some forces were withdrawn under, under President Trump as well, but there was an understanding that America was clear-headed. And as a result, what you started seeing was uh, a block emerging of allies, essentially, you had Israel, the Saudi, Saudis were cro- didn't cross the threshold to peace, but the truth was there was huge amount of under-the-table interaction, some of which very, very powerful strategic interactions that really meant more than any formal peace treaty. UAE crossed the line and made peace, as did Bahrain and Morocco and, and several other countries. So all of a sudden, here was Iran not only denied money, but it was denied. It, it began to see this this strategic block emerging to its south, that on one side link could link up to India, and on the other side link up to Greece. That really is beginning to provide a strategic, uh, a strategic alliance that bears down on them, which is part of the reason why you started seeing the Iranian people rising up because they felt their regime was under siege, and they felt maybe now's the chance to to free themselves. And that had, but but that was all contingent on removing the Palestinians from having veto over peace, because the Iranians had, of course, Hamas and a lot of influence over even the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Palestinian Authority, which is still ruling in the West Bank. Basically, the Iranians have huge influence over all the various factions among the Palestinians. So the moment that the Saudis, the Bahrainis, the UAE, Israel, and the United States all agreed, you know, the Palestinians can't have a veto here. Israel can make peace with these countries directly without solving the Palestinian issue. 
the Iranians lost their leverage. But there was also born this war, that the Iranians realized the way to destroy this alliance, which remember, just before this war broke out three weeks ago, we were in advanced stages of discussion with um, the uh, Israelis and the Saudis about to reach peace, a formal peace. Uh, the Biden administration reintroduced the Palestinians and kept trying to reinsert the Palestinian question and that framework because they they were so upset that I mean uh, it's it's sad to say but I think they just never forgave Trump for making peace without the Palestinians and 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 so they constantly reinjected them and that gave the Palestinians a lot of leverage to start blocking this but moreover. It, it set the stage for the Iranians pushing the Palestinians into this massive explosion. So I think it has a lot to do with that, that the Iranians are trying to burst the bubble of this Western alliance, which strategically created momentum on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the moderate Arabs, and on behalf of the United States. And Iran looked like it was in the strategic retreat. Now, all of a sudden, the Israelis look weak, battered. Uh, the, the Iranians are saying, look, you, you're a spider web, you're falling apart. The Saudis are running for cover, are scared. They're not sure the Israelis are going to do what they need to do. The Americans are confused and reaching out to the Iranians and trying to calm things down. And that, not seeing it as a strategic event between Israel and, and, and the Iran, America's still living in the paradigms of the first two years of the Biden administration. They want to have, you know, Israel may be able to knock out Hamas, but let's re reintroduce the Palestinians again. And Iran, we can still make a deal for region. So everybody's sort of running for cover, and there are the Israelis standing all alone facing this war now. And that really tells you the direction the war has to go. It, it, it has to end in a tremendous Israeli victory that restores its image of power. And through it, the Western alliance feels confident and begins to restore itself in the momentum and the region changes. The, the last part of your question about Israel fighting alone, I think that's a critical point, because if Israel relies on American troops, and it's never in its history relied on American troops to fight its wars, it's always fought alone. Uh, if this time it's different and it uses American forces in any shape or form other than maybe resupply or, or perhaps shoot down a missile or two that's coming from Yemen, if, it, if, it, if American boots on the ground are fighting for Israel, then it proves the point that Iran is trying to make, that Israel is not a viable country. It's a colonial Western country that relies on American troops to survive. It actually confirms Israel's weakness. It doesn't confirm Israel's strength. So Israel no. really needs to win this war on its own, and it needs to come out of it very strong so that the Saudis and others feel the confidence to f proceed with this, this peace alliance that is really a strategic alliance and anchors the Western interests while the United States really needs to focus in Asia and Europe and really can't continue to put so much strategic uh, capital in the Middle East. Well, before I let you go, I, I appreciate the fact that you've gone through all of this with us and explained it to us. But before I let you go, what is your prediction on this? Can Israel do that? Israel can do it. It has the power. It's woken up. I mean, uh, Israel, when they called up the reserves, they didn't have 100 percent turnout. They had 170 percent turnout, which was mm -hmm. a problem. 
they didn't even have enough weapons for some of the people, which is why you're seeing this massive airlift of, of American aircraft coming and bringing simple things, guns, helmets, etc. The, the Israelis literally didn't expect so many soldiers to, units mobilize themselves without being asked to mobilize. So Israel, mm -hmm. the country is very powerful, very strong. It has the power to do what it needs to do. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dreadful, I mean, when I kept talking to Israelis, there is a sense of optimism, uh, but there's also a sense of dread. They know the cost yeah. will be huge, uh, but they're willing to pay it. It's, I suppose, where America was after 9-11 and certainly after Pearl Harbor, which is we know what we're up against after Pearl Harbor. And so the Israelis are similar, that they know what they're up against and they know they're going to pay a price and that what they paid three weeks ago was a down payment on a bigger price. But they're willing to pay it now. Uh, and they're, they're, they've woken up from the slumber. And by the way, they're screaming at everybody who comes there. America, wake up. Europe, wake up. South Korea, wake up. Japan, wake up. Especially South Korea. This can happen to you. A lot of Hamas's yeah. weapons were North Korean. So North Korea can do this. So, but, but they have the power. But it is a, it is a dread. There is a sense of dread that the cost will be very high. But my sense. I mean, that, that do it. I think I think what you've been saying is really how we've felt here. We're kind of screaming. You're letting Chinese companies come into the United States. You're selling U.S. land to the Chinese, which they would never allow us to go in there and buy land. We are allowing our enemies to come across our border every single day. How can we how can we be in this situation? And as we've watched this happen in other countries, I mean, if you look at Germany right now, it doesn't look a lot like Germany. If you look at Sweden, they're dealing with a whole bunch of issues that they would never have been dealing with 40 years ago, you know? Yeah. So I think that the this message is at a critical time where I think it's time for Americans to say, if you are coming to this country, are you coming here because you want to be an American? And we were just having this conversation over dinner the other night. It was like, hey, we've always kind of felt like we don't care what your background is, what you, you know, where you come from, who you are, as long as you're coming here because you want to be an American. Yeah. And that, I think, has been the question that we're seeing right now as these Chinese companies move in and as they are bringing in their CCP operations on the grounds. Wait a minute. No, this is very dangerous. And that's a whole nother conversation. I'm sure we could go for another half an hour talking about that. So someday I'd love to have you back if, and chat a little bit one, more. If there's one thing the Americans should take from this war is that what you just said, that we need to begin to think seriously about our own slumber and the threats that are emerging and the collapse of our border. And the fact that Israel saw Hamas come across the border and do, do what they do, we're not seeing mm -hmm. who's coming across our border. And we know- Yeah, that I think it's key what you said earlier about they were bringing folks across to work every day. And yeah. this was like, yeah, let's, we're, they felt like peace was happening. They felt this- Completely this comfort level that they should not have felt. And I think that it's hard to see when it's happening, but now that we're seeing it from the other perspective, we can look at that and go, wow, we have to really, really protect our sovereignty, our national security. And it's just not a place that we've been for many, many years, but I appreciate you waking us up today. David Wormser, thank you so much. Thank you, Taylor. 
And thank you all for joining us on the Tudor Dixon podcast for this episode and others. Go to TudorDixonPodcast.com and subscribe right there or head over to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us the next time on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Have a blessed day. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas, ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4patriots.com tutor to get your solar generator generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to fourpatriots.com slash tutor. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.